0: Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with
1: the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community,
0: or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Doerr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all new episode.
1: Welcome back everyone to the Mastering Agility podcast joining Jim Sammons and myself, Sander Dirk, in discussing anything related to business agility and Scrum. In this episode, we'll continue the discussion that we've been having in the previous episode, and we'll just kick it off from there. All right, let's check the next question that our audience today would like us to answer. What does a typical day look like for a Scrum master? Ooh, that's always a nice one. It's not the first time that I've been asked that question.
0: Yeah, me either. What? What? what I don't think there is a typical day. What do you
1: think? I don't think there is a typical day. Mm. You're constrained or dependent on so many factors, and usually those, are, those factors are people, mm-hmm. and people you cannot plan for. You cannot take any 100%... Um, rule into account for this so there is no typical day you cannot plan ahead usually there's quite a bit of ad hoc work to deal with as well Mm -hmm. or just jumping on the spot what kind of how you're going to facilitate really depends on reading the room what kind of energy um what kind of impediments the team is working with or outside or any new stuff emergence insights that we need to work with so again i don't think there is a typical day yeah, I, I, yeah. The I, only commonality that I see is talking a lot.
0: Yes. Yeah, Be, or at least being ready to talk and able to communicate. Um I think my view is maybe not typical as in like these are things that I would encourage somebody to do all day every day, but there are some practices that I recommend to scrum masters. One is and, and I kind of have an unfair advantage here over you for this question, because right now I'm in the midst of a six week gig where I am modeling the scrum master role for a client. So they've asked me to come in and basically play the role of a scrum master for a few sprints to show a a new set of teams what it could look like or what it maybe should look like. And one realization I made that I just do naturally, but I don't know if it maybe we could say is typical is I look at my calendar um, in the morning first thing and even the evening before and say, what am I, what, what, what do I have going on tomorrow and what do I need to be ready for? And like, oh, I see this meeting or this scrum event or this thing coming tomorrow afternoon. What do I need to do to make sure I'm ready for that? Or what do I, what can I do to help my product owner, my team, or somebody else be ready for that? And even like, I have a daily scrum to go to here in about an hour and nine minutes, and I've already looked at the board. So I've looked at the board, the backlog, I've clicked into some things and read through some comments, and I'm coming into that 15 minute meeting ready. Ready. I don't have any, any predisposed topics. I don't have any, um, anything, but I know what may or may not get discussed. And if I were to see a problem or see an update or something, I'm ready. So I think one of the typical things I would answer is you can't just, as a scrum master, cannot just show up drop all your stuff down on the table or click into the meeting and say, okay, what are we here to talk about? Or let me facilitate this thing for you. You've got to be at least a step more prepared than everybody else. If you're going to be seen as a leader and a value to that group.
1: I think it's interesting that you bring up that you're um, going into like the data scrum well prepared. Do you, are you required or asked frequently to facilitate events like the daily scrum where you're not technically supposed to facilitate them?
0: Yes. I am frequently asked to do things that may be contrary to the scrum guide. And my I, I always caveat that with, we're going to do this for a while to learn um, because we're learning what a daily scrum might look like. So the team is pulling me, to do that, I'm not inserting myself into those situations where maybe I'm not um, required, and I think that's the key difference.
1: Okay, and do you see like a, a growing, increasing line when it comes to the self managing ability of the team that you're working with?
0: Um, I, you mean, do I see it increasing or decreasing because I'm more involved?
1: A little bit of both.
0: Yeah, I I think if I was uh, like a full-time scrum master working with this team or or a group of teams every day, there would be a big fear of they're becoming too reliant on me. How am I creating them to be self-managing and self-organizing around this and without being a crutch? As a consultant and an outsider, it's normally a lot easier because they know I'm temporary. So I then have a platform to say, hey, in the near future, I'm not going to be here. How are you all going to do this? Um, I do think that's a big concern that everyone should be aware of as scrum masters to say, if you do something in the sake of um, teaching or mentoring, or even because the team wants it, you've got to also have your eye on, am I creating the right or wrong habits and behaviors in in the people I'm serving?
1: Yeah, uh- Personally, my experience is that this happens way too frequently, right? Where teams, developers become so dependent and reliant on the continuous availability of their Scrum Master uh, that in case the Scrum Master were to get sick or hit by a bus, which I do not hope, they would flail around on the floor like a fish on the dry. And I think it's a nice segue Um, to the question that we're getting in the chat from our audience. What would you say are tasks Scrum Masters are usually being requested to do that shouldn't be part of the role? Thinking of my current role as a Scrum Master, working in safe, constantly updating bug tickets. Well, this would be a perfect example of Mm -hmm. things not to do. Don't update bug tickets. A, focus on how to remove those bugs to, to start off with and to make sure that we don't get those bugs into the system. Um, but becoming like that person that people are looking toward for updating bug tickets or jira or speaking of demeaning stuff <laughs> scrum or the developers and scrum masters being expected to just update jira tickets or their bug tickets or any of this trivial stuff that they can do themselves, I think it's insanely disrespectful,
0: yeah, um. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree, and and I like this chat uh, this question in the chat. Um, one way that I will do this is I if I'm at the daily scrum, so let's just caveat it with if I'm there in any capacity, whether it's coach, consultant, scrum master, whatever. Um, one of the the questions I tend to ask is, does the board reflect reality? And what I'm what I mean by that is. Is everything in the right place? Is the right name against it? You know, is this the real transparency of our current reality? And if somebody's like, no, my thing should be moved here. I say, okay, can you please move that? And I don't do it for them. Or if somebody said, no, that should be assigned to so-and-so. I say, okay, can you please assign that to them? And I will encourage them to do it right then and there. And over time, they realize Jim's not just going to do this for me. Um, so I think that's one thing when it comes to something like updating bug tickets, I think it kind of comes back to what are you updating? Uh, none of it's really the scrum master's job to update any work item or, or thing like that, but it might be more important to know what type of updates it is, but My answer is that I'm going to come back to, from the very beginning, from day one, be encouraging the team to constantly be doing all that administrative stuff themselves.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a good addition to the scenario coming from the audience. I should add, I'm doing it because otherwise my development colleagues, developer colleagues, would be bothered by others at least every other 30 minutes, trying to give them the opportunity to actually do work without being interrupted all the time. I think it speaks volumes that you're trying to support them in, in that way so that they can actually focus. So Scrum values focus. But this would be a dependency or an impediment to, to work with. Like what's going on that they need to be bought every 30 minutes and how can we accommodate for them to, or for the environment to be set up where they don't need to be bothered every 30 minutes. I don't think like the issue should be updating bug tickets and these kind of things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the scrum masters helping their team remain focused on the work is good. And, you know, everything's a balance. So the person asking this question in the chat, you know, I guess an overall thing is you've always got to balance helping the team with the good things like focus and, you know, staying on task, less context switching, seeing the goal in mind and all that versus, if I do this, am I destroying their long-term ability to be self-managing and do for themselves? And am I building in reliance on my on me? Um, everything's a balance, and like, there's no like right way to do this all the time. Um, and thirty-minute updates, like again, uh, you know, we we don't have a lot of context here, but I would just wonder what type of updates are that frequent. And is it, is it monitoring something for a discussion? Is it more administrative? Because maybe those things, not only should the Scrum Master not do them, but nobody needs to do them. Maybe they don't need done every 30 minutes. Ah, so we just got some more information in the chat from our audience. Managers demanding updates. Bingo. That's the problem. The problem isn't whether the developer or the Scrum Master should do it. The problem is managers shouldn't be demanding updates. Um, and this, this comes, and I know that might sound like a, like an easy thing for you to say, Jim, like, yeah, no, no shit lock. Well, this is where I tell scrum masters a lot. You've got to stop doing the low value things and start doing the high value things, which is talking to managers and others about why do you need updates every 30 minutes? Or what is it you really need? Do you need visibility? Do you need transparency? Do you need to just make sure that um, things are being looked at or addressed. I think that's a better problem to solve than updating a ticket and being this conduit or proxy of, of information.
1: I think this house mostly or most frequently is my experience has a lot to do with those type of managers that are not being really part of the whole transition when it comes to the mindset, right? So, These are people that see themselves quite frequently as the leaders, yet they are not leading anything because they are lacking the knowledge. Therefore, they are laggers, not leaders. If they were to really encompass and uh, embody the whole agile mindset and the ways of working and and, and really understand how scrum and the agile mindset works, they would not have a need specifically for these kind of micromanaging updates.
0: yeah it, exactly. Um, this could come back this could be where a working agreement could come into play and say, you know we're not going to give you 30 minute updates unless you know the sky is falling and and it, it's at that level. So I, I think I, I think this really comes back to influence, negotiation, transparency, um, and there's probably many different things that could help in this situation, but there's probably no one silver bullet that's going to fix things all the time. But yeah, some of it is, I think telling people in polite and respectful ways, um, leave us the hell alone. Like you, you know, the more times you bother us, the less we're focusing on your, the thing you want us to be focused on.
1: Oh yeah. I think what people tend to forget a lot is like the scrum events or all the events in whatever, agile framework that you're working with are designed and created to make all the other events and meetings redundant, right? Yet so often you still hear, here, oh, but scrum adds so many meetings. No, it doesn't. You do. Mm-hmm. Like, there are just five events in scrum of which four are formal, meaning that the rest of the time you should have available to actually develop. But if you're constantly being harassed to update, this manager for this and that manager for that, and then being called into another defect meeting for something else, you know, you're continuously being disrupted off your flow. Then you cannot really create the value that you're supposed to create. Yeah. So I do really like like this part of um, this updated podcasting format where we can actually interact with with the audience in this sense. Yeah. and get more clarification on the questions. Again, if you're listening and you want us to ask, answer your questions as well, or you want to be part of this this show in the chat, uh, feel free to join us. Uh, there's a mural link on the website and in the show notes where you can add your questions, and we'll pick them up, definitely pick them up. And the same with being a part of the audience. We'll share the link for future episode recordings. Jim, you to say before I rudely interrupted
0: you. No, 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 you're good. Um, so I think that this uh, – so, re- again – Sandra and I are getting some more context in the chat, which is great and helpful for me. This could be a scenario where the best thing a Scrum Master can do is actually insert the product owner into this um, and step out of being in this flow. That's assuming there is a product owner and all these other things, but because the product owner is likely the best person to speak to stakeholders, which is the case here in this example of, Is the team working on this or this? What's the update? What's the impact of this thing versus other things? And I think product owners are naturally going to run from that and say, no, 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 I need you to keep doing that. But that is part of what they need to be doing. Um, So it might actually be, in this case, not that the Scrum Master is impeding the developer's uh, growth, but it could be the product owners to say, why are you not negotiating and communicating with stakeholders as frequently as they want? Or how do you want to respond to these things? Because if they're like, yeah, they shouldn't even be working on that bug or defect right now. Well, then maybe um, they're going to have to deal with the outcome of that decision later. That That's one yeah. thought that, that comes to mind.
1: And it's the same with the, the growth of the agile leaders, right? It's not just the product owner. It's not just the developers. But if you take away the opportunity for leaders to get these new insights and in how to actually interact with a Scrum team and how their um, behavior affects the levels of psychological safety, then they're never going to grow because usually don't they don't get like the proper guidance or coaching that they need to change their paradigm shift in thinking.
0: Right. So I want to, so I just had a realization. So I'm looking at our chat here and I, some words jumped out to me. Um, Demand, harassing, um, uh, no trust. I think those are the big problems here. Like this doesn't even feel like a tactical issue about a bug. This feels like a bigger issue about conflict and respect and how people communicate and all that the situation that this person's dealing with is likely an outcome of all those other things of, you know, demands and harassment and micromanagers and all these things being just accepted ways in this organization. And unfortunately those are much bigger problems to solve than how do we get bug updates or updates to a stakeholder in a more timely fashion.
1: So it's more of a cultural change that probably is going to be hampering like this organization?
0: Yes, I, that's but my Jim, guess.
1: Aren't agile frameworks supposed to fix everything that we're dealing with?
0: Not even close. Agile frameworks, <laughs> like um, in my, I have a sign off camera here that says Scrum is an Illumination framework, and I've been, I've had that sign in my office for years now because uh, I, wa- I was in a uh, in a meeting at a bank, big global bank that every audience member, my guess, has heard of. And the executive director said, see, Jim, this is why all this Scrum stuff and Agile stuff is bullshit. I go, whoa, why? Why?" And he said, because it's not delivering on its promise. And I said, tell me more. What promise is that? And he said, better, faster, cheaper. And I said, well, there's the problem. And he said, what? I said, we never promised any of those things. And I think that to your point, frameworks, and I don't care which one we're talking about or which method or strategy of managing work we're talking about is these are not silver bullets, but they illuminate things. So what this question is illuminated is we have a semi-toxic work environment. We have some cultural norms that are accepted and prevalent that are not helpful. And Scrum is making those visible to the Scrum master, to the developers in this case, uh, to the product owners in my suggestion, but it's not going to fix them for you.
1: No. And I I think that was Ken Schwaber who said that like scrum is like your mother-in-law. It points out all your flaws
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and then it's up to you to decide how to deal with those flaws, whether you really want to fix them and how to fix them, or I can just, you know, keep them alive and then not deal with the pain actively. But always suffer from the consequences, right, and I think that's what's going on in in this person's situation like the con the, the true consequences are never being dealt with and leading to a micromanaging style of behavior and never really reaping the benefits
0: yeah two two other quick kind of uh, points in this one is this is why it's so important that scrum masters report to someone organizationally that can support them doing the right things. Because if our, if our audience member felt very supported and safe and secure and doing the right thing for the right reason, they would likely be more, they would be more likely to push back on this. Um, yeah. and, and I'm not saying that's not the case, but that is just why I think it's so important that change agents report to people who understand that, you know, if you're going to make an omelet, you're going to have to break some eggs. Um, it leads me to a question for you. And if this is a tangent, please, let's let's hold it to another podcast. But what do you think about the idea of many people that Scrum Masters are there to protect the team from something?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Mm, let me think about this for a second. Because what does protect really mean?
0: Yeah. I I mean, in this case from, from the audience member, I think it's like I am protecting my developer's ability to focus and get work done by dealing with all this demanding micromanaging harassment. Um, It could be other forms of protection, but I think this is a very common one that I get asked about from clients and students and others.
1: Yeah. Cause I think that is you want to define what protecting
0: means because mm-hmm.
1: if I look at the, the current society and I, I'm not going to point fingers. I just uh, observe that m- many people want to be cradled all the time and there should be no friction whatsoever when it comes to any interpersonal thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we, they want to be protected of any external factor that could influence their sense of comfort. And then either we can teach them or help them and support them in making them self-protective, or we're going to be like the external shield. But as soon as we step out of the way, they're not being protected anymore and they're exposed to any, any factor that could potentially harm them. Right. So how do you really protect them by taking away all these kind of things or that we train them to be self-protecting, right? Yeah,
0: uh, yeah. We could probably spend hours on this, um, but I I see this focus on over-protection or even protection as a misconception about Scrum. The word "protect" does not come up in the Scrum Guide one time. The closest thing you can find is that. Scrum Master helps people ensure that interactions are positive, productive, effective, all those type of things. So that is about the closest you're going to find to this idea of Scrum Masters protecting the entire Scrum team. Um, So if we use the Scrum Guide language in this case, it's, well, it sounds like maybe things like micromanagement and 30-minute updates and all this is not effective or productive. So maybe you do have a platform to step in, but if we use like a a sports analogy, it's like the coach doesn't go on the field. They prepare their team to self-protect. Like if you think about a violent sport like rugby or hockey or football, uh, either form of football, the way that the coach helps the team protect themselves is by conditioning, by training, by teaching fundamentals, by saying, uh, by having a strategy. All of those things are protecting but they don't go on the field and prevent the big linebacker from laying out the running back, right? They have to rely on, on equipment, tools, conditioning, all these other things to protect them. But that's scary. Absolutely, yeah.
1: And I don't want to deal with other people who can be scary to me.
0: Then you should go to play solitaire or chess or backgammon or something other than... Contact sports like software development or football.
1: <laughs> Contact sports for software development. I like the analogy.
0: Yeah. now but it comes
1: to, it comes back to the to, to the earlier question that we got when it comes to dealing with dependencies. I these are dependencies as well, interpersonal dependencies. Yet we're often reluctant to deal with these dependencies and resolve them because we have to talk to other people. And other people are scary. And if there's any form of conflict, I'm going to try to avoid that at my utmost. Yeah. And then we're going to bury our heads in the sand like, like an ostrich. Or at least that's what the paradigm – not the paradigm. That's what the the example always is, right? I'm going to be like an ostrich. I'm going to stick my head in the sand. Yeah. But ostrich, ostriches don't stick their heads in the sand. Right.
0: When I – so I speak to some local – tech bootcamp graduates at the end of their program. And one of the the stereotypes that I put on the screen in front of them is, is a picture from the movie Jurassic Park of a, of a techie person who's like in a darkened room surrounded by computers and jolt cola and moldy pizza and all this stuff. And it's a single person. And I think those were the stereotypes that a lot of people might have when they think about software people, an individual working alone, uh, you know, whatever hours they want. And that's not what modern software development looks like anymore. It's not what the modern workplace looks like anymore. And I think the the big, you know, it's a good thing for me. I think it's probably a good thing for you, but it's a bad thing for some people is I got into this job or I thought this job was all about me doing technical work, engineering level work by myself or, and that the company is going to value my capabilities And really what becomes the biggest impediment is their soft skills or what is now called core skills of, can you communicate? Can you collaborate? Can you visually describe something complex in a way that other people can understand it? And those are so hard to develop. They're hard to interview for. They're hard to find. They're hard to cultivate. Whereas things like coding or engineering or woodworking or metalworking, those are more um, straightforward things to learn versus how do I influence people or how do I negotiate with, with somebody that's very, very important?
1: Listen, soft skills are usually the hardest to actually, I'm not going to say master because there's no point where you're going to really master those, those soft skills, but it's incredibly hard to work interpersonally to read the room, to read the emotions that people are dealing with there is no one size fits all approach that says I'm going to follow these steps and then I'm going to make everyone happy. No, that's not how it works. Uh, you can like learn the basics from theory, but it's really the proficiency and in, in building a backpack that you can draw from to see what kind of strategies or tactics, or maybe even some facilitation techniques that you want to employ in certain situations.
0: Yeah. So, Sandra, I have a question for you to, to do a, a pivot here um, because I'm curious and I bet you the audience is curious. What is the last thing that you have consumed in any format to help yourself in your career?
1: This podcast right now.
0: Okay. What are you going to take away from this podcast and how are you going to apply it?
1: Oh, many things. You know, the the, the funny thing about being the quote unquote host of this. I am i don't really feel like a host. I really feel like more of a listener that by chance is actively participating in this this platform because mm-hmm. there are so many things I can take away from your experience, from all the guests' experience that I have. And again, in this case, it's taken a good hard look at myself and how I, for instance, work with management and leadership and, and how I'm dealing with them on an interpersonal level. And I want to challenge myself to do a little bit of an introspection or retrospection after these engagements to see and really jot down what could I have done better and where was I? Where could I catch myself in
0: any biased thinking? Mm. How are you going to f- find your biases? I'm curious. I struggle with it. I think everybody struggles with seeing biases in themselves
1: yeah there are a few that became very apparent to me because of this podcast as well Uh, one of them is in the past uh, one of the first episodes I ever recorded was with Jeff Gothelf and he's an amazing guy he's really humble he's really nice but he's also super knowledgeable especially when it comes to management and leadership and Afterwards or even during the podcast, it made me realize how much of a management basher I used to be. Mm. Like I would always think about, No, um, idiots, you're doing it wrong. You don't get it, you're not actively involved. But he also learned me that or he taught me make me realize that they are trained to employ this kind of behavior. Right? Our educational system is not set up for a more liberal approach to thinking as a leader Mm -hmm. and how to deal with situational leadership and and situational applicability and what to employ when and how so on. The people who are empowered or in power making decisions at this point are still stuck-ish in the Taylorism kind of mindset and they have been taught in these frameworks um, and the, the more traditional ways of thinking. And therefore that made me realize that I should really work with them more frequently and make them realize how to change this kind of behavior. And that made me very aware of biases when it comes to leadership management.
0: Interesting. I like that.
1: Very elaborate answer to a very short question.
0: No, it's good. Like, that's what I wanted. Um Thank you. Yeah, no,
1: but to be honest, I think this is by hard episode 63 now. And there have been so many things in, coming out of all of these discussions that made me go back to my own consulting practices and then gigs and really rethink everything that I was doing at that point. And it's never a straightforward line. It's never something that I continuously go and and think I'm there. I'm doing a good job. It's always someone new who comes in. In this case, it's you that made me makes really makes me think I have to adapt in certain situations because I'm doing a suboptimal job there. And then when I adapt, then I drop the ball on a different. So I I'm very aware that I'm never perfect.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, as a teaser to maybe a future discussion we're going to have for the listeners is kind of thinking about how'd you get so smart? Like, how'd Sander get so smart at these things? And how do you internalize things? How do you grow your career? And how'd you get to where you're at? And all these things. And I think it's, my guess is... um, it's going to, I'm going to, we're going to find when we talk about that, that it's iterative and incremental and that you can point to maybe what I call a, a catalyzing moment or a catalyzing event. Like maybe it was a single question you got in a, in a, in a class that made you go deep on a topic, or maybe it was Jeff being on your, your, your show that made you reflect on your empathy towards a certain job title or type of person. Um, And I think that that's very in line with what my answer will be as well when we get to that topic.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, Maybe just to go back to the board that we're working with. Sure. um, in, in, In a similar fashion kind of question is, is it the job of the scrum master or the product owner to remove impediments? Neither. No. It says, to strictly speak, scrum, It says in the Scrum Guide that it's the job of a Scrum Master to cause the removal of impediments. This could mean that just have someone else resolve those impediments, right? Only when when they are really team external factors or impediments. That's where you as a Scrum Master could step up together with the product owner if it's needed. Right. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I, I I don't know if it was which one of the liberators it was that I'm stealing this answer from. I think it was uh Barry, but um I asked uh, or or saw this question get asked, when should a scrum master step in and remove an impediment? And the answer, and I'm paraphrasing, was when it exceeds the team's ability to do so for themselves. And to me, that's uh a great answer. Um and I think it, it is is aligned with my thought of the scrum master should not be seen as the default impediment or blocker remover um but there are times where they do need to step in and take action there are things that it's maybe not right or able for the team to resolve for their their themselves and i think that's kind of the the safety net approach to the scrum is like if all else fails i will take this on and step in and take action but It's that balance again between could I or should I? And it's like, yeah, you could. Should you is a very different question.
1: Yeah. Coming back to the previous topic and kind of make an overlap here. The word exceed is open for interpretation as well. At least what I've been – what I found myself to do in the past is – overthink or overestimate the abilities of my, the team that I was working with. I don't want to say my team because I don't own the team, uh, but the team that I was working with and I sort of assumed a high level of self-management and so high level of um, impediment resolving skills, which they lacked
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they, at least they felt they lacked. So the gap where I was in my expectation or where I saw their potential and where they really, where they felt they were was really high. So I tended to have the pitfall that I would sit back too often for them to resolve their own stuff, where I should have stepped in way earlier.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. I. I and I think that's a good reflection of. And I was talking about this recently of doing what's what I call I don't know if this is an official thing but a hindsight refinement. Like if you had to go back and redo this again with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, what would you do differently? And I think that's a great technique for everybody, um, on a team to reflect on, but especially a scrum master. Like if I had to do it over again, I would handle that conflict differently, or I would address that sooner or later or not at all. And, La, uh, last week, I was spending some time with my daughter, who is now twenty five, um, and we were just talking about something. I don't even remember what the topic was, and she said, "You know, one of the most helpful things that that you and mom instilled in me from an early age is don't bother people with questions that are simply Googleable and that you can go answer for yourselves." And yeah. I it was so great as a as a parent for me to hear that to say, because that was not an accident. We I consciously did that. Her mother and I consciously did that to say, why are you texting me when I'm at work? Just Google it. You you have a supercomputer in your pocket. Pull it out and Google it. Don't bother your teacher, don't bother me, don't bother your friend with that until you at least arm yourself with some more information. And that was kind of a constant theme in my parenting approach was balancing doing things for her and teaching her to do for herself. To Because I was in the business, uh, as was her mother, of growing a capable adult instead of protecting my child. And that might mean We taught her at a very early age to order for herself in a restaurant. And when she got a little older to call and set an appointment for herself and that, and now she's not afraid of any of those things where I see other people who have told me, I didn't order for myself in a restaurant until I moved out of my parents' house, or I didn't call and set a doctor's appointment until I was 20. And I'm not saying my approach is, is better or worse. It's, it's really about is doing for them better or is teaching them to do for themselves better? And yeah. then, you know, balancing situation by situation.
1: Look, from that perspective, I sat back a little bit too much when I was living at my parents' place. I didn't move out until I was 23. And over here, it's a little bit different compared to, for instance, the U.S. when, when to move out. Um, but my mom used to do a lot for me. And of course I only started to really appreciate that the fact after when I left the house, Uh, but I knew I could cook. I knew I could do this, that X, Y. I just did not want to. And if I didn't do it, someone else would do it for me. And that's what I see happening a lot in the organizations as well. Sorry, mom, by the way, sorry. (laughs) Uh, I'll never do it again. Uh, But people tend to sit back so much and wait for things to be resolved magically and and, then disappear just on their own. And my advice would be, don't be 20 year old me.
0: I don't know. I, I like however old you are now you, so the version of you is based on that, but I think, you know, is what you're saying that your growth was slightly delayed because you had it easy?
1: Um, probably. Yeah. So two things, a, uh, don't respect, disrespect your mom. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. And B, uh, yeah, if you start picking up these things a lot sooner, you'll grow faster and it may, it'll make you become more self-reliant and your self-esteem will grow. And it's no different in our scrum teams. If we teach them and the, the people that we're working with to be as self-reliant as soon as they can they'll feel a lot more comfortable speaking up to management or speaking up to anyone else for the better sake of the whole product,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think our job is to create it and make it safe for them to to do that like uh, I tried very hard when I was rearing my child to not let her make scary mistakes. To not let her make a mistake that would affect her in a very long-term or major way, but yet to allow her the freedom and safety to make a lot of little mistakes. You know, if I said, I want you to call and set your own doctor's appointment and she doesn't set it, it's not the end of the world. If I say, I'm going to let you figure out how to schedule your SAT or ACT exam, which is going to have an impact on how you uh, get into college, um, maybe that's too much autonomy for a 16-year-old. And and maybe it doesn't mean I do it for her, but maybe it means I check a little more often and take a little more of an active approach. So I think it's you know, about, are you playing the short game or are you playing the long game? And yeah. as a coach and consultant, I intend to want to play the long game. But that might mean I do things in the short term that I don't want to do in the long term. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just... It's just a different approach.
1: You can always sit next to her as well, right? Just, I'm going to be here to support you when it doesn't go the way that it should be going. But I'm going to be passively sitting here. I'm not going to be actively involved. You go fix these appointments and I'll be here to see you and guide you wherever needed. Yeah. In, but don't expect me to actively take part in this.
0: In Dutch, do you have the idea of, in the US, there's a phrase called a helicopter parent. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think, kind of like what we're talking about. And if if somebody, whether it's a developer on a team or a child or somebody knows, no matter what happens, Sander's going to swoop in and fix it and make it all better for me or Marge is going to reply to all those annoying micromanagers for me, then you, you're you basically making it safe to ignore those things, and that might not be what you want to do.
1: No, absolutely yeah. not. And I think that would be a very nice conclusion for this episode. Awesome. If there would be one dominant book that you've read in the last couple of months, which one would it be?
0: Well, related to this topic, um, the thing that I've read the most recently is I picked up a physical copy of uh, The Dichotomy of Leadership. So my answer would be the dual books of Extreme Ownership and The Dichotomy of Leadership from Jocko and Leif. Um around this idea of leadership and empowerment and accountability
1: awesome let's include a link to the show notes next to the mural link that we have as well as any potential upcoming recordings and the discord community link jim it's been a pleasure once again
0: you too thank you audience thank you sander can't wait to
1: talk thank you definitely audience for your lovely comments
0: That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, or joining our warm and welcoming discord community. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility Podcast.